Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Heavenly Father, there's a lot here in these verses. A lot behind uh, what Paul was saying, his heart, his, uh, what was on his mind, his uh, concern for the churches, his concern for your gospel and for your glory. These are uh, significant and important uh, commands and exhortations. And so, Lord, as we look at these few verses uh, this morning, help us to understand the implications and applications. Please guide us. Help us to, by these um, verses and these principles and these commands, help us to understand uh, other things in your word, other commands and principles. Please guide us. And, Lord, as I preach your word, please guide me, guide my tongue, uh, Guard me, edit in what you want edited in, and edit out what you want out, and uh, guide my tongue, guide my words for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Throughout church history, there's uh, been many pastors, theologians, and Christian authors, and um, some we have been reading about and studying about in our uh, Sunday school class, but there, there's been many um, men uh, who have spoken or written about the power of joy. And we see this uh, term, we see this principle, uh, whether it's the word joy or rejoicing, we, we see it throughout Scripture. And for the most part, we understand it, we get it, uh, and even apart from Scripture, we understand it in our own lives, but there, there's many who have written about the power of joy, and that there's a sense that uh, we don't really need to be told to uh, or instructed to have joy over certain things or to rejoice over certain things in our lives, but then the scripture commands us and tells us to rejoice in God or to rejoice in the Lord or rejoice over certain things uh, in our Christian lives. And there is this, this power of joy which many have spoken about and written to. In fact, uh, one, uh, one uh, pastor from uh, around the late 1700s, he, he uh, preached a sermon and then it got turned into a book, it was called, entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, Thomas Chalmers. And in, in that uh, sermon, that, that booklet, he, um, his, argue, his basic argument is that um, in order to fight sin, the besetting sins in our lives, or in order to grow in holiness, 
We need a superior joy or affection or desire that is greater than that uh, joy which sin promises. And there's a sense that, that Paul is, is hinting at this when he uh, begins this chapter and he transitions and he says, Rejoice in the Lord. John Piper, um, who's a noted uh, pretty well-known pastor and has written uh, many things in, in most of his writings. If you're familiar with his preaching or his writings, most of his writings center around this concept of joy, of rejoicing in God. In fact, uh, his, his primary uh, book, uh, Desiring God, which if you have not read it, I highly suggest you read that book. Um, and he, like many authors, he, he, you know, he has one, one main thing and, and, and then... Um, or one main book, and he writes about that, and many of his other books are along those same lines. But in that book, Desiring God, he says this. He says, I find in the Bible a divine command to be a pleasure seeker. That is, to forsake the two-bit, low-yield, short-term, never-satisfying, person-destroying, God-belittling pleasures of the world, and to sell everything with joy in order to have the kingdom of heaven and thus enter into the joy of your master. He he calls himself a Christian hedonist. And what he means by that, and he intentionally used that term for, I I believe, for shock value, um, because most of us would agree that hedonism is bad um, to live for the pleasures of this world. But he calls himself a Christian hedonist. That, in, in fact, that he and, and, and he would call other Christians to live for the pleasures of God and for the joy of God and for that, that God offers greater joy than anything in this world. And if we seek God and we desire God and we, we strive after God in that manner, that, that He will offer us everything and, and more that this world can offer or promise to us, then, then we will see all the, the um, temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil as, as really nothing of, nothing of value. And we won't chase after them. And throughout most of his books and sermons, he writes on this. In fact, there is one sermon where he um, explains uh, uh, what the Bible says about joy. And it's, it's interesting. He has 14 points, but there's so much more. As you start to look at this principle of joy and this command to rejoice, you see it all, it, all over Scripture. It unfolds to you. And, and this, I believe, is what... Paul wants us to do and wants the Philippians to do, to rejoice in the Lord, to seek the Lord for joy. John Piper writes, he says, Jesus' aim and all he taught was the joy of his people. John 15, 11. He, he, he writes all these verses and, and, and these principles of joy. Uh, and he says, second, that joy is what God fills us with when we trust in Christ. Romans 15, 13, Paul writes, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. He says, Piper goes on, says, The kingdom of God is joy. Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
It says joy is the fruit of God's Spirit within us. We see that in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And what's interesting, is we all know that. Most of us know that, the fruits of the Spirit. But what's interesting about that passage is I believe the fruits of the Spirit, there's almost an order to it. Joy comes after love. Joy is very important in the Christian life. Uh, Fifth, Piper goes on and says, Joy is the aim of everything the apostles did and wrote. 2 Corinthians 1.24, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. That you would have joy in God, in Christ. Six, he says, becoming a Christian is finding a joy that makes you willing to forsake everything. This is uh, the parable of the, the um, treasure hidden in the field. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field in joy. Seventh, Piper writes, joy is nourished and sustained by the word of God in the Bible. Psalm 19, verse 8, the precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. 8, he says, joy will overtake all sorrow for those who trust in Christ. We, We heard these verses many times in the Psalms. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Ninth, John Piper writes, God himself is our joy. Psalm 43, verse 4, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And then Psalm 1611, probably the the premier verse uh, and psalm concerning joy and joy in God, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. That's a verse that you ought to commit to memory. That's a verse that helps you to fight the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That no one, nothing in this world, in this life, can offer you greater joy than than Jesus Christ, than God, than heaven. And you think of it not only because the Bible proclaims that, that in God's presence is fullness of joy, and in His right hand there are pleasures forever. Not only does the Bible proclaim it, but logically speaking. Logically, is there anything in creation which could offer you more than the Creator who created it? That's illogical to think that something that was created would bring you greater joy or satisfaction than the creator himself. And we think of that. We think of that as we come to this passage this morning. As Paul tells the Philippians, and by extension, he tells us to rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice in the Lord. And he will go on throughout the rest of this letter to... In a sense, expound upon that in his own life and then will repeat it again. And as we've been going through this letter, 
um, one of the main themes. It's, it's not just me. I've been repeating it from pastors, theologians, commentators, that one of the primary themes of this whole letter is of joy. This is called the letter of joy, and we see it over and over again, either if it's not uh, written in terms of the, that term joy but, or, or rejoicing, it's there. And Paul even models that as one who has joy and is rejoicing in his circumstances, being in house arrest in prison. And he has, he has called the Philippians to rejoice with him. He rejoices over the fact that his circumstances are resulting in the furtherance of the gospel, that because he is imprisoned, uh, brothers around in Rome, people are being emboldened to proclaim the gospel even more, so the gospel is going out. And, and even those who are proclaiming it in, with wrong motives to seek to almost um, uh, speak against Paul and, and to malign Paul, he still rejoices over the fact. He rejoices over the fact that he might die and, and be executed for the sake of Christ. He calls the Philippians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel with joy, to proclaim him, to uh, think the same way, to think of others as more important than themselves, to uh, think like Jesus, to model Jesus, and, and even to follow the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. In their service, which was with joy. He calls the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus with all joy and to hold him or hold men like him in high regard because of his sacrifice. And then he gets to this, uh, this chapter, chapter 3 and, and verse 1. And it's, it's almost as if uh, this, it's a break in the letter. It's the second half of the letter. And there's a statement, finally, my brothers. And it's almost as if he's concluding the whole letter. And it's not necessarily that he's concluding the letter. But he's, it could also be said ultimately or of highest priority, finally, uh, conclusively, in summary, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And he will go on and he will expound how he himself is rejoicing in the Lord and then call them again to rejoice in the Lord in chapter 4. But here in these few verses, we could, and we see the main command, but we could also derive uh, a couple other commands. And we're going to look at this uh, these few verses in uh, three main points. Three main points as we consider three primary commands concerning joy in the Christian life. That's what we get from these few verses. And the first is right out in front of us. The first primary command concerning joy in the Christian life is that we are to rejoice in the Lord. We are to rejoice in the Lord. And we understand uh, there's those times in our lives when, like, like um, you know, we, our emotions are high or low or we have trials or challenges. But there are those times in which we rejoice and those good times in life and we look forward to those good times. We, in a, in a sense, sometimes place our hope and expectation in those good times in which we will rejoice over uh, a vacation, an experience, a relationship, uh, some new thing we buy like a house or a car or whatever the case may be. But we are to rejoice in the Lord. 
We are to rejoice in God. We are to rejoice in Him, and first and foremost, because we're commanded to. We're commanded to rejoice in Him. And not only here in this particular passage, but again, Paul calls the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord in, in chapter 4, in verse 4, this verse which many of us have memorized and should memorize, a, a verse which uh, the following verses are, are somewhat of a um, cure and an antidote to our anxiety, that we are to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice, whatever your circumstances Wherever you're at, whatever um, your health or your relationship status or your financial status or whatever um, may, be, uh, may be coming around the corner in terms of a trial or a challenge, whatever it may be, we are to rejoice in the Lord always because the Lord is in control and he guides us. And he cares for us, and he loves us. But we're to rejoice in him simply because we're commanded to. And that's somewhat contrary to our thinking, to command somebody to be joyful. It's like we, you know, we often see people in our lives, uh, uh, someone, usually people that are close to us, family member or friend, that is, um, gets depressed or discouraged, and we say, cheer up. And we offer them some sort of encouragement or encouraging word. But we wouldn't necessarily say we would command them to cheer up. I command you cheer up or I command you to have joy or to rejoice. Um, But there's a sense that all throughout Scripture, and especially Apostle Paul, uh, commands believers to rejoice, to have joy in the Lord. Because if you don't, it's almost... Um, an offense to God. And, and many have spoken about this. Many pastors have said, you know, we, the Christian church, in a sense, um, ruins its testimony with its bad attitude or its lack of joy. You know, you, you want to proclaim to me the, uh, salvation and, and uh uh, heaven and all the joys of God, but you don't seem joyful yourself. And it's convicting. It's convicting. And it's especially convicting when Paul is speaking that from prison to rejoice in the Lord and to rejoice always. He says it again in chapter 4 and verse 10 when he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly when. He received their gift. He continues to tell them to rejoice as he rejoices. And so we see this command. We rejoice in the Lord because we're commanded to in this particular passage. But it's not just here, and it's not just Paul, but all throughout Scripture. We're commanded to rejoice. And I shared some of those uh, verses uh, as John Piper was, was hitting on those and, and the different aspects of um, joy throughout Scripture. But there's more. There's, uh, I'm just going to share four more. Here's uh, the, the Jews, Leviticus 23.40. Uh, one of the feasts, they were commanded. The Feast of Booths. 
Now, it says this in Leviticus 23:40. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. They're commanded during this feast to uh, live in booths and commanded also to rejoice the seven days, the extent of that, that feast. They're commanded to rejoice. Once again, Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. That, that comes at the end of this song which Moses is taught to, um, or he, he's instructed to teach the people. And at the end, it, there's this command, in a sense, to all the nations to rejoice. To rejoice with God's people because of God's uh, redemption, because of his vengeance, because of his atonement. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a rebuke to the nations and the kings. And in verses 10 and 11, it says this. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. And that's interesting, to, to pair rejoicing with trembling and, and service uh, to God with fear. But they're, they're not at odds with one another. We are to, because we are to fear God, but we are also to rejoice in God and to love Him. And there is a sense that we can both in the, in the same time rejoice in Him and fear Him. And then, then another verse uh, from uh, Paul writing to the first Thessalonians in verse, uh, chapter 5 and verses 16 to 18. Another memory verse which some of you have memorized or, or you should commit to memory. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's will is that we would rejoice in him. That we would be glad in him. That we would seek him uh, for all that he is, and, and, and he would be our greatest joy and our greatest desire. We are to rejoice in the Lord because we're commanded to, but also because we're created to. We are, create, we are created to be uh, worshipers of God, to um, rejoice in him, to uh, sing his praises, uh, to um, have a relationship with him as Adam did in the garden until he fell. We, we were to see him as great and awesome as he is and just to look upon his creation all around us and just see his beauty and his, his creative genius and his wisdom and, and his greatness and to rejoice in him, to eat of the fruit of the land and, and, and drink of the water and breathe the air and hear the birds singing and see the colors and the lights and everything around us in creation and rejoicing in our creator. We're, we're created to rejoice in the Lord. But we're also to rejoice in the Lord, not just because we're commanded to and not just because we're created to, but because we're compelled to. We're compelled to by uh, creation, but also by recreation or recreation, that we are recreated, redeemed 
restored, uh, regenerated in Christ Jesus through the Spirit, that He has saved us. Uh, Though we have fallen in sin and and we've been corrupted by sin and and we live in a sin-cursed world, if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. New things have come. And that's supposed to be the number one thing that compels us to rejoice in the Lord. And that's the one thing that that Paul... um, Uh, continues to expound upon here and the reason why they are to rejoice in the Lord. But we're also compelled to rejoice in the Lord by way of reminder and repetition as as Paul says here in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 3 that he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard for you. We are compelled to rejoice in the Lord by way of reminder and repetition. It's interesting. Paul says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me. He's repeating himself. He's reminding them over again. And things which he has probably taught to them when he was there with them in Philippi, things which other disciples have taught to them, things which they have heard from other teachers, things which he has written to them, things which he has written to other churches, things which other of the apostles have written. Reminders. All throughout Scripture, we see reminders. We see uh, the same principles over and over again. Uh, Like the command to love. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which Jesus repeats, which is repeated throughout the Old Testament. The reminders of of who God is and and His his characteristics, His attributes. We, we need reminders, and we need also not only reminders, but repetition. Because one of my professors would always tell us, he would say, repetition is the key to learning. The key to learning is what? And we'd have to say repetition. And he'd say that over and over again and drill it into us. And then he would get on with the lesson, which he would drill into us over and over again so that we would not... Forget it, and we would remember it. And the Bible does that. The Bible does that. We see verses from the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament. We see principles restated. We see them rephrased in different ways so that we see the same principle or the same command from a different angle. And we need reminders. We need repetition. And Paul says, why? Because it's a safeguard for you. It's, in a sense, uh, guardrails. To keep us on the straight and narrow. It keeps us from veering off to one side or the other. To, from ke- keeping us from falling into one ditch on this side of the road. Or the other ditch on the other side of the road. This is safeguard. This repetition. These reminders. And particularly these reminders about rejoicing in the Lord. It's a safeguard for us. And why? Because that, it gets back to um, the reason why. Uh, many preachers and pastors and theologians have spoken to and written about the power of joy. Because if, if your joy is in the Lord, if you're rejoicing in the Lord, then these lesser joys of sin, of whether it may be uh, lust or covetousness or material possessions or substance abuse or, or, or name the sin, 
that that sin offers a lesser joy because you have a greater joy. You're satisfied in God. So this thing, it, it loses its power to tempt you because you're satisfied in God. That, that's how rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard for you. It, it protects you against other temptations. It protects you against sin. It, it helps you to fight against sin because you're focused on the Lord. You're rejoicing in Him. You want to serve Him. You want to honor Him. You want to glorify Him. You want to be with Him. And so because of that, you don't want to be with any other thing or, or even uh, around the wicked You want to be with the Lord. You want to honor the Lord. You want to glorify the Lord. You want to rejoice in the Lord. And so all these other things, they they lose their power of temptation. But more than that, and the reason why he is telling them that it's a safeguard is because of this second command concerning joy in this passage, which comes from a negative perspective. He We see this first command concerning joy in the Christian life is to rejoice in the Lord. And then this second command is beware of those who don't rejoice in the Lord. Beware of those who don't rejoice in the Lord. He commands the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord and that it's a safeguard for them. And then he comes to this warning. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. These Three, this threefold uh, warning to beware of the same type of people. These aren't different people. They're the same type of people. Um, but to beware of them, and you're guarded from them by rejoicing in the Lord because these are people, these are uh, religious people, false teachers who don't rejoice in the Lord. They, they, they rejoice in other things. And they are religious. These are pointing at the Judaizers. And throughout the New Testament, and in the early Christian age, there was many heresies, but there was two main heresies that were assaulting the Christian church. And the main one, probably the first one, came by way of the Judaizers. Those who would come to believe in Christ or at least say and affirm that he was the Messiah and he, he was uh, the Christ, but then um, tell the, the believers or um, in that day and age that they need to obey the law, that they need to, and especially the Gentiles, that they need to, in a sense, become Jews. That it wasn't enough just to believe in Christ. They needed to follow all the ceremonial laws of the Jews. And and, uh, it was a heresy. It it was a system of works. They are calling the believers back to works. Primarily circumcision. And so Paul gives this warning. Because their, their whole goal isn't, their whole object, their whole desire isn't on Christ and Christ alone, but the whole, in a sense, the whole uh, Jewish uh, Old Testament sacrificial system, the whole culture that they still wanted to be a part of. And they wanted to promote that, especially to Gentiles. And it's interesting because for uh, most of the, throughout most of the Old Testament, throughout most of the history of the Jewish nation, 
they would see Gentiles, they would see those outside of, um, of Israel as uh, unclean, unconverted, uh, pagans. And, and certainly there was a sense in which they were unclean and they were idolaters and they were uh, pagans and they were engaged in all manner of evil practices and idolatry. And, and because of that, uh, the Jews would call them dogs. They were unclean. They were dogs, and we we don't see uh, we we don't get the weight of this term, that, which is derogatory. It, it was offensive. This was an offensive, uh, derogatory term to call someone a dog. And most of us, we enjoy dogs. We have dogs as pets. We love our dogs. So we find them cute and cuddly, and uh, sometimes too much. So sometimes we put too much emphasis on our dogs. But in the Old Testament world, in the, the first century, and in the history of the Jews, a dog was, you didn't want to be called a dog. It was very offensive because they were unclean animals. They were scavengers. They, they ran about in packs. They were dangerous. And it's interesting that Paul, in a sense, flips the table. That the Jews, normally calling the Gentiles dogs, Paul now warns the Gentiles of the Judaizers calling them dogs. And he says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the dogs because they're, in a sense, they're religious scoundrels. They're religious scavengers. They, they look for someone to devour. Similarly to what Jesus is um, uh, his rebuke to the Pharisees, as he says in Matthew 23:15, "Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves." This is, in a sense, what the Judaizers were doing. They, they would uh, they would affirm Jesus Christ. They would affirm most of the gospel, but then they would say, no, but you have to be circumcised. You have to follow the law now. You have to um, join us. It's, it's not enough just to believe in Christ, just to repent and believe. And so they were, in a sense, trying to uh, almost hinder the Gentile believers, trap them into this Old Testament system of worship. Paul tells them, beware of them. Because there are dogs. There are dogs. They're, they're religious savages. They're, they're not only unclean, but they are untaught. They're uncivilized. They're undomesticated concerning religion. They, they, they don't understand the, the greatness of Christ and his sacrifice. This has been said before. Uh, there's only two religions in the world. There's a religion of human achievement and divine accomplishment. And this was, in a sense, the dividing line between the, the Old Testament sacrifice, sacrificial system, uh, which, in a sense, would, um, was meant to point to Christ, to the perfect sacrifice, but uh, became a hindrance to many of the Jews who were caught up in works, in human achievement, and, and, and to the point uh, where it got to the point where the Pharisees uh, got wrapped up in, in self-righteousness. All the externals of religion, rather than the grace of God and the divine accomplishment of Christ. That his sacrifice and his sacrifice alone is enough. 
to save us, to redeem us, to make us clean. Only Christ can make us clean. And so Paul tells the Philippians to beware of those who don't rejoice in the Lord because they're unclean, they're dogs. And second, because there are workers of evil. They are workers of iniquity, workers of lawlessness, which Jesus proclaimed uh, in Matthew chapter 7, depart from me, all you uh, workers of iniquity, you workers of lawlessness who, in a sense, are, are trying to work your way to heaven, trying to uh, work your way up to God, trying to do good works to uh, almost, in a sense, um, make God your debtor. And in doing so, it's interesting that Paul calls them evil workers because in, in, in all their work, uh, they are, in a sense, working against the kingdom of God and against the gospel. They work for the advancement of Satan's kingdom. And they do so by twisting scripture, as Satan did, by skewing the gospel, by promoting idolatry, by spreading heresy, and, and, and seeking to lead believers astray, to, to lead them back, to promote circumcision and, and, and Jewishness. And all the trappings of that culture and that system. But he not only calls them dogs and evil workers, but it's interesting that this last term, beware of the mutilation. And that's a play on words. That's a play on words, uh, on the word of uh, circumcision. It, it, it takes it a, a bit farther. And... Uh, the circumcision, the, the, the Greek word being peritome and, and mutilation being katatomain, katatomain rather. Uh, it, it's a play on words. That, that they, they are taking it a step further and actually mutilating themselves. And so he, he tells the, the Philippians to beware of them. Beware of those who don't rejoice in the Lord because they are unclean, because they are workers of evil, and because they are defilers. They defile themselves through this misplaced confidence in misunderstood co covenants. They, they misunderstand the, the, the original covenant of, uh, to Abraham, which initiated circumcision and the Old Testament covenants, and, and then even the new covenant, which they defile. They defile the new covenant, as uh, the writer to the Hebrews would say. He says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 21, Eight, he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? And what the writer to the Hebrews is hinting at in Hebrews chapter 10 um, as he does the whole letter to the Hebrews, is he's speaking to those Jewish background believers who are being persecuted and are, in a sense, tempted to go back to the, the Jewish culture and Old Testament sacrificial uh, system and, and to uh, almost uh, deny Christ, in a sense, because of persecution and persecution by their brethren. And to go back. And the writer to the Hebrews says that anybody who goes back, they in a sense defile the new covenant. They, they, they trample the blood of Christ. Because they, they in a sense 
see it as not worthy or as not as important. These evil workers, these dogs, these, the mutilation, they also defile the gospel. They add to the gospel. They add circumcision. They add works. They add uh, culture and dress and uh, the, the diet and the customs of the Jews. They're, they're adding to the gospel. There's also um, what is we, we can see in all, almost all the heresies, almost all the cults throughout church history is an adding to the gospel, an adding of works, adding to Christ's sacrifice. And um, I, I've spoken this before, I've, and other pastors, uh, this, this concept of theological mathematics, that if you add to the gospel or whatever you add, that actually becomes more important than the gospel, and, and whatever you add ends up, in a sense, subtracting from the gospel. It takes away. It becomes more important. And if you have to add anything to the gospel, and if there's any, anything extra which you have to do, then it, it no longer is good news. It's no longer good news because you're adding to it. I like what one commentator wrote concerning this verse, concerning verse 2. He says this. He says, The threefold repetition of this verb, beware, and the use of alliteration, which... You don't see it, you see it more in the Greek because uh, kunos is a term for dogs, kakus is evil, um, and then katatomain is mutilation. He says this, the, use, the threefold repetition of this verb, beware, and the use of alliteration and the studied irony of this passage make this section a striking example of Paul's rhetorical power. His, it, it, it's so there's there's great power in this warning in this threefold warning uh, uh, of this verse of verse two uh, this strong warning about these Judaizers about these false teachers this beware of them he he, he crafts this verse in such a way so that it would be memorable and it would be a, a, a stark warning about this heresy about going to works or adding any work to the gospel, and it undermines uh, joy in the Lord. These are people that don't rejoice in the Lord. Beware of them. Beware of them because they're unclean, they're workers of evil, and they're defilers. And ultimately, they don't rejoice in the Lord because they're rejoicing in self. They're rejoicing in themselves. They're rejoicing in their works. And this is ultimately every false religion, every cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Roman Catholics, any uh, Christian cult, even those outside of Christianity and and a works-based religion, ultimately they're rejoicing in themselves and their own religious resume, which they are building up by their own works, earning their way to heaven or paradise or whatever it may be. They are rejoicing in themselves. Or they seek to, they might not seem to have joy because they have not measured up to their own standard, but that is their goal, that they would uh, build themselves up to the point where they would be happy with themselves in a religious manner and they could, in a sense, rejoice in themselves that they have done good. But we are called to rejoice in the Lord because it's only by the Lord, it's only the Lord that is good, it's only... 
by him that we can be saved. It's only through him that we meet the standard because only he met the standard. And we are to not only rejoice in him, but we are to rejoice in the Lord's works, in his works. That's the third point. We see the first command is to rejoice in the Lord. The second is to beware of those who don't rejoice in the Lord. And then the third, we are to rejoice in the Lord's works. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the true circumcision. We rejoice in the Lord's work. We are the true circumcision, not because of what we have done, not because of our own separation and cleansing, but because of the Lord's work of separation and cleansing. And so we rejoice in the Lord's work in, in three ways. Three ways in, in His work of separation, in His work of regeneration and indwelling, and in His work of salvation and sanctification. First, as Paul says, we are the circumcision. Uh, circumcision symbolized uh, a separation and a cleansing. That Abraham, when he entered into a covenant with God, when God entered into covenant with him, in, in fact, that was um, shown in such a way in, in Genesis 15 and then Genesis 17 that, that God himself would keep all the uh, requirements of this covenant. Um, but then God gave uh, Abraham this symbol of circumcision, which was to symbolize uh, a, a separating, that they were set apart, that they were cut apart, but also a need for cleansing. And it was also pointing to the fact that, that, um, that the fall, that sin, um, sin nature is transmitted from one generation to the next through our offspring, through that point at which... Um, one generation is, is, uh, uh, precedes the next and, and procreated. It symbolized separation and cleansing and the need for separation and cleansing. But circumcision was also pointing to something else, something greater. A, a greater sense of separation and cleansing. As not only... Um, the, old, the, the Jews were told to circumcise their male, every male on the eighth day, and to keep this symbol and, and, and um, to keep this command. But even in the law, Deuteronomy 10 we, and Deuteronomy 30, there's uh, a couple things we read concerning circumcision, which will also be repeated by the prophets. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12 says this, so now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God ask from you? But to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did Yahweh set his affection to love them. And he chose their seed after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. So circumcise your heart 
and stiffen your neck no longer. Now, ultimately, the, the, the symbol of circumcision would, would be to point to a deeper cleansing which was needed at the heart level. Now, Israel circumcised the males, but they themselves and everybody needed a circumcised heart. It was truly the heart that needed to be cleansed, that needed to be set apart. And once again, that would be repeated in Deuteronomy 30. Verse 6, Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Just like the whole sacrificial system. It, it pointed to something greater. The whole sacrificial system, everything the Jews were to keep in concerning worship was to point to a greater sacrifice. And circumcision likewise was to point forward to a greater, more definite setting apart and cleansing that would be done at the heart level that God himself would circumcise our hearts. And he would do it through Christ. So that we would be the true circumcision. The, the, the ones who were truly set apart, who were truly cleansed by God as He circumcised our hearts in salvation through Christ Jesus and by the work of the Holy Spirit in taking out that heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. As Paul would go on and say in, in Romans chapter 2, he, he's speaking against the, the Jews and saying uh, at, at the end of Romans chapter 2, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the, the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. We rejoice in the Lord's work and in His work of separation that He has separated us. And even the term church is, is called out ones. Those who are called out from the world, separated from the world, set apart, cleansed at the deepest heart level, given a new heart, uh, circumcised. We are the true circumcision. We, we don't need to, to uh, partake in these external religious uh, sacraments. We are the true circumcision. Second, we are to rejoice in His work of regeneration and indwelling because we are born again by the Spirit to worship in the Spirit. Paul says we are the, the circumcision, the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus. We worship in the Spirit. This is what Jesus was talking about as He confronted the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, when, when she tries to uh, divert the, the, uh, or derail the conversation and talks about um, worshiping on a mountain or worshiping in Jerusalem. She, she brings up this, this concept, this, uh, uh, this subject of worship, and Jesus tells her, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Meaning, you must have the spirit indwelling within you. 
It's not enough just to go according to the law and according to the scripture. You must do that. You must worship according to truth, according to what is written, and not according to your own desires or your own opinions or your own experiences, but what is according to truth, according to the word. But you also must worship in spirit. You must be born again. There is a sense that, and we see this in many churches, Uh, Most good churches have this written down that for those who would like to serve as a musician or serve on a worship team, they have to be a member. They have to be born again because you can't worship God unless you are born of the Spirit, unless the Spirit is inside of you. Those people in, in, in cults and false religions, uh, the, the people in the Roman Catholic Church and, and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons or any fringe Christian group who think they're, they're worshiping Jesus and think they're worshiping God but are not born again, they are not worshiping God because they can't. They don't have the Spirit residing within them. They're not indwelled by the Spirit and so they can't walk in the Spirit Their minds are not illumined by the Spirit to understand the word of the Spirit, so they can't worship in truth either. God is is, is seeking such worshipers who who worship in spirit and in truth. And, And that's who we are. If we are in Christ, if we are the true circumcision, we worship in the Spirit of God. We and that's a work of God. That's a work of his regeneration, of his indwelling, that the Spirit has caused us to be born again and has indwelt us and has equipped us and has illumined our minds to even understand the Word of God and to understand what happened in salvation. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 2 as he tells the Corinthians, Who among men knows the depths of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the depths of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God. This is why it's so hard to evangelize someone who's caught up in in some uh, works-based Christian cult or or, um, heretical group like, uh, you know, Catholics or... Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or, or even people are on those fringe uh, uh, charismatic uh, type groups and churches, people, and, and there's many. They, they seem to be multiplying. And every once in a while you, you, you hear about a new one and you try to evangelize them, you try to show them the word of God where they're wrong and they don't understand it, they don't get it. Because there's no, the Spirit is not illumining, it's not in them to open up their eyes to see and to understand. We rejoice in the Lord's work and His work of separation that He has caused us to, uh, to be born again. So we worship Him in the Spirit of God and, and because of that, we boast only in Christ Jesus. 
We boast in His work of salvation and in His work of sanctification that we are saved through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ alone, not not by our own works or not by our own wisdom, not because we were smart enough to uh, respond to the gospel message because we raised a hand and walked an aisle and and, uh, uh, responded. No, that was the Spirit's work within us. From beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord, and we because of that, we boast in the Lord. We boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. As he says, putting no confidence in the flesh, that means no confidence in human works or, or heritage, uh, uh, the Jewish heritage, or, or even in our day and age, a Christian heritage. Our hope is only in the Lord. We are saved by the Lord and by Him alone, and we are sanctified by the work of God alone and Him conforming us into His image. And so we cannot place our hope or our trust in uh, a religious system or uh, religious works or a religious heritage. None of that. We, we boast in Christ and in Christ alone. We are the true circumcision, and because of that, we rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in Him alone, and as we rejoice in the Lord and rejoice in Him alone, we are, in a sense, uh, protected, guarded from all the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and every false religion. This is what Paul wants to drive home to the Philippians, to not only rejoice in the Lord because they're commanded to, but because it's also a safeguard, because they were saved to rejoice in the Lord, because that's their duty, that's their privilege, that's what they've been given. And because the Lord is worthy, because he's good, because he's pleasing. As I read Psalm sixteen eleven, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. As I was studying... This, there's, there's so many passages concerning joy, so many books, so, so much concerning this concept of rejoicing and rejoicing in the Lord. It's at the heart of worship. And it reminded me of, you know, as, as I, I have for a long time, I've, I've had this practice, part of my own personal devotional life. Uh, I'll, I'll read um, either a prayer book or a hymnal. One of my favorites is The Valley of Vision. And I just read a, a prayer, and there's this one prayer written by a Puritan. It's called a colloquy. I, I believe that's the right pronunciation. Colloquy on rejoicing. And this Puritan pastor, he writes this. He says, Remember, O my soul, it is thy duty and privilege to rejoice in God. He requires it of thee for all his favors of grace. Rejoice then in the giver and his goodness. Be happy in him, O my heart, and in nothing but God. And then he says this, these two next phrases, these verses, which really struck me. He says, he writes this, For whatever a man trusts in, from that he expects happiness. Whatever you trust in, you expect happiness. Uh, whether that's money or a bank account or a new thing or an experience or a vacation, whatever you're placing your trust and hope in, you, you expect happiness from that thing. And he goes on, this pastor says, He who is the ground of thy faith, 
Christ, he who is the ground of thy faith, should be the substance of that, thy joy. We, we trust in the Lord for salvation. And, and, and logically, if we trust in him, we should expect happiness from him and joy from him and hope in him. He who is the ground of thy faith should be the substance of of thy joy. And this is what Jesus was getting at when he said in Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. You know, we, we think about that, selling all that we have. And, and, and sometimes, you know, we hear stories of businessmen or entrepreneurs who had such a great opportunity, such a great deal, that they sell everything to invest in this one thing because of what it could possibly offer them. The, the potential for earnings, that they would sell everything, their house, their home, their bank account, clear it all out, liquidate everything, sell it for this one thing. And Jesus uses this illustration of a man doing, in a sense, the same thing, but with the kingdom of heaven and with salvation, that he gives it all away in joy because of what he has found in Christ, because of who the Lord is, because he's rejoicing in the Lord and all that he is and all that he has offered in salvation. Jesus likewise would, would, would say, in, in, uh, as Mark records in Mark chapter 8, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. He goes on, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Everything. Uh, everything is in the Lord. Everything that is good is in the Lord. Everything that, that we could hope for is in the Lord. And that's why we should rejoice in the Lord. That's why we're commanded to rejoice in the Lord. That's why it's a safeguard. But... For some of us, I, I, and maybe many of us, we don't rejoice in the Lord. We don't rejoice in the Lord. And I, I, either we don't rejoice in the Lord because we don't fully understand salvation. We don't fully understand who the Lord is or what He has done. Or we're, we're struggling in our Christian faith. We, we don't uh, practice the spiritual disciplines of Bible study and prayer. And so we don't know the Lord as we should. And so we don't rejoice in Him. But... For others, you don't rejoice in the Lord because you don't know Him. You haven't seen, you haven't come to the point where you, you've seen your sin and you've seen the, your, your just condemnation under the wrath of God, that you deserve the wrath of God, that you deserve hell, that you deserve to be punished for every single one of your sins, whether that's thought, word, of, or deed, whether that's sins of commission or sins of omission, things that you have done which you shouldn't have or things which you have not done which you should have. Yeah, every single one of us here deserves hell because we have been born in sin and we commit sin and iniquity and only through God are we saved. Only through Jesus Christ can we be born again, can we be saved, can we be forgiven. And if that's you, if you have been forgiven, then you ought to rejoice in the Lord. And if you don't rejoice in the Lord, maybe it's because you have not been forgiven. Maybe because you haven't understood your need for forgiveness. Maybe it's because you haven't come to him 
and understand as Peter writes, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. Through him we are healed. And because of that sacrifice, because of that redemption, we not only rejoice in him, but we remember him. We remember him. One of the primary ways we remember him is by remembering his sacrifice through this ordinance, through this sacrament of the Lord's Supper. As we come to celebrate, as we often are told, and we are told in the word to do this often. So we remember that we remember that we were cut off from the Lord, that we were separated from him, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God made us alive through Christ Jesus that he sent his one and only son to live a life that none of us could live and then to go to the cross to die the death that we all deserve to die. That he was given a body that may be broken for us on the cross and he was given a, a blood that it may be shed for us. And so we celebrate that. We celebrate that in the Lord's Supper. And as we come to this time in our service in which we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper is a reminder that we are called to examine ourselves, to confess any known sin, that we are not to eat of it in an unworthy manner. That means um, if you're a believer, if you have truly been born again, but you're living in gross, unrepentant sin, then you're not to eat it. If you're not a believer, then you're not to eat it. Uh, you don't necessarily have to be a member of this church, but you do have to be a member of the universal church. And you do have to be uh, a believer who is striving for holiness. So if that's you, then you are welcome to join us and to partake in the Lord's Supper together. Amen. But I will pray for us as we transition to this time in which we celebrate the Lord's Supper and then... Uh, the men will dismiss you to gather the elements and then we will celebrate together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage and there's, there's so much there concerning joy and, and the basis for our joy, the object of our joy, our command to rejoice in the Lord and because of all that he has done, all that you have done, all, all that has been done in and through us for your glory. That you have redeemed sinners such as us through the sacrifice of your Son. So as we come to celebrate, help us to examine ourselves. Help us to confess any known sins so that we may eat it in a worthy manner and actually rejoice in you as we do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.